Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Night after night, thousands of people gather in giant spaces to see men in short pants bounce a ball. It's called the NBA. This week on This American Life, we gave the play-by-play team of the Phoenix Suns the night off. Sarah Canning and I sit courtside and call the game in our unique style. Act one. Ira, uh, I think the game has started. It has. Yeah, the two tallest guys faced each other and a... A short man threw the ball up in the air. Act one, Matt Barnes, who plays for the opposition, has been on 11 teams in 14 years. What's it like when a family member is traded a lot? We called Matt's favorite aunt. I can't believe she said that. I think it might be 26 to 20 right now. Is is that a basketball score? Act two, taking the charge, drawing the foul. You set your feet, remain still. A split second later, a huge man crashes into you. You get knocked down. And that's a good thing. We asked writer Jack Hitt to put on gym clothes and find out what that was like. Shouldn't we describe what's happening now in the game? Act 3, the national anthem. Sarah decides to sing it. I called a guy, and, and he told me about another guy. He's like a general, but he's in the Navy. He knows all about the national anthem. <laughs> He told me you sing the anthem before the game starts. He sounded very sure about that, but could I trust that guy? Like, if this is true, then every question we've had since the game started is, I mean, new stuff has come to light. So, like, singing the anthem might be more complex than, I mean, you know? Sarah, I'm being told the game is over. The team in the purple uniforms is happy. Special thanks today to our co-founder, Tori Malatia, who... When I asked him if he wet his pants, said, I'm Ira Glass, and now somebody who is not Ira Glass. Somebody who is named Chris McEnroe. We're talking to Ira Glass, the creator and host of This American Life, among many, many, now many other things. And he, I mean, he produces movies. He does all kinds of stuff. Uh, And he is going to be in Hartford on November 12th at the Bushnell. That's Saturday to uh, give something called Seven Things I've Learned, an evening with Ira Glass. Is this like a fungible thing? Like if you learn a new thing, would it have to be eight things or would you push one of the other things out? Would you kick one <laughs> of them out of the nest? Um, d- yeah, exactly. Because I have to say to them, listen, guys, the title is seven things. One right. of you has to go. Um, actually, the, the, I've, I've given this speech. I keep changing it. I've been giving it. I've given it now four or five times. And each time I change the things and each time there's way more than seven things. So, but seven things seem like like a snappy title back when I had to name the speech before I had written it. And I think it gives people a sense of comfort that there's some order here. There's some sense of control. This is not going to exactly. Spiral. It's not going to be chaos. Yeah, no, no, no. I think people, when people come to a speech, they're scared of chaos for sure. Right. So I wanted to begin by asking you, just sort of generally and also very specifically, how you're feeling right now, um, living through this time in America. I mean, this past week's episode was called "Seriously," and it was kind of about the challenges to empiricism uh, in the current election season. The one coming up takes a look, I think, at the state of the Republican Party and whether people who are Republicans even recognize the party that they allegedly belong to. So this is obviously something you guys are talking about uh, as you put 
together shows. What what mission, as you have had meetings about this all fall, what mission, first of all, has This American Life assigned itself in covering the election? Well, mainly, you know, we're a documentary show, so we, we though we never use the word documentary on the air because the word implies that it will be boring, but we are, in fact, a documentary show. And so what we look for is things to document that other people haven't documented and things that we find interesting and new. And and so the main thing that was new this year was Donald Trump and his presence in the Republican Party. And so one of our producers, Zoe Chase, basically just became very obsessed with with documenting what was going on in the party and especially the discussion between uh, Republicans who had really different visions for what their party should be. On the one hand, these kind of anti-immigration, pro-Trump people. And on the other hand, these uh, people who, you know, might feel, you know, alarmed about the situation with illegal immigrants, undocumented workers in our country, but did not see it as the pressing problem that these other people did. And in fact, adhered to more traditional sort of like Republican values like limited government and, and things like that. And, 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 and then the split between people who were just alarmed at Donald Trump's character and people who were not and, and what that's doing to the party. And so she's done a series of stories about Trump supporters. And, and again, partly because I feel like in the press, there wasn't that much documentation of people who really love Donald Trump and why they, they love them. Or, or there was, but, but it always had a kind of anthropological sort of smell to it and wasn't a kind of emotional thing where, where when you heard it, you felt like, oh, yeah, I get it. Like if I were them, I'd totally feel that way. Which is which is more kind of in the in the world that 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 our show lives. So Zoe did a bunch of stories, and then we have this. So we have more, more than that coming up, and then we did do this one thing last week based on feelings that I was having of just I am just straight up alarmed, as I said on the show about just how we at the degree to which we live in a post fact world and and the way that we see it in this campaign. You know, I mean Hillary Clinton lies as well, but but not to the degree that Donald Trump does. And the way the lies are accepted as truth by, you know, a third of the country, no matter what he says, and the fact that there's an entire media apparatus, and by that I refer to the non-fact-based parts of the right-wing media, that, um, you know, that that just have an entire crazy conspiracy theory about about Barack Obama and leftists trying to dissolve national borders and trying to bring this country down and, you know, you know, very tr- traditional liberal politicians who they believe hate America and are trying to destroy America in a way where I feel like it's very hard to find factual basis for for a lot of their claims. And uh, it's alarming the number of people who, who believe those things now. So you went at this a bunch of different ways. One of them was you talked to your own Uncle Lenny. We're going to play a little clip of you talking about Lenny and then to Lenny. My Uncle Lenny's 81. He's a retired plastic surgeon outside of San Diego. He gets all of his news from Fox and the Wall Street Journal, not into President Obama or Hillary Clinton at all. Doesn't like Trump very much, but he's voting for him as the lesser of two evils. Ira, good morning. Hey, have you been for your walk today yet? No, I'll do that after we're finished. Really? I thought the walk was more of a first thing in the morning kind of activity. Well, it sometimes is, but I don't want to be too rigid. You don't want to be somebody who at night eats exactly seven almonds. That's right. That's a crazy person. <laughs> That's right. I'm telling my Republican uncle an Obama joke just to make him happy. A few weeks ago, I started recording conversations with my uncle Lenny about the election. Mostly we would read the New York Times together online, and he would tell me what he thought of the stories. 
But what struck me most about those conversations is when Uncle Lenny would talk about Hillary Clinton and especially about Barack Obama, the way he sees them. The story in his head about them seemed very out there. Hey, can I ask, what do you think of Obama? I think he is um, an intelligent man who's never done anything worthwhile in his life. He, at print, at... Uh, hey, wait, stop uh, right there. I feel, I feel like I find that confusing. Like, he's he's the first black president. That's, that's an incredible thing. That's an incredible thing. Well, symbolically it is. But his performance has been that of an amateur, which he also is. So one of the things that you said that I really liked was that you you love your Uncle Lenny, that he's saying these things, you know, questioning really basic kinds of premises, even whether President Obama even attended Harvard or whether anybody had ever seen him at Harvard, that kind of thing. But you love your Uncle Lenny. And why was that an important part of the story? Um, I mean, I feel protective of him as I feel protective of anybody whose story we're documenting on the show. I'm not putting people in the air to make fun of them Mm -hmm. or to treat them like a specimen in a cage. And so we go to great care that we don't do that in any of the stories. And I feel like that was a concise way of saying, like, I don't think he's an idiot. Like, he feels mm-hmm. these things for real reasons. And, in fact, millions of people, maybe a third of the country, believes the kinds of things that he believes. And, like, those are our fellow countrymen. They are not deplorable. Like, those are those are people we love and know. And, and like, you know, those are our peers. Like, I, I feel like I, I was treating him no differently than I would treat anybody else who we would put on the show, of giving him the courtesy of... of letting him exist as a three-dimensional person who gets the respect that he should. Right. And I think that goes back to what you're saying about Zoe Chase, too, that although there's been reporting about this, you know, a lot of it, as you say, has been kind of anthropological, although I thought George Saunders did a nice piece in The New Yorker where he really kind of made an attempt to Agreed. find That's out. That's one of my favorite things anybody's written about the election because he takes as the premise, we live in two different information worlds, and he was coming from the mainstream media, liberal side of it himself, and his interviewees, who were all Trump supporters, were coming from another reality. And 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 what was interesting in his story was this is anybody can find this online if you're curious. It's beautifully written. Is that is that he finds all these moments where like they would they would find common ground for a minute, which which is so much of a part of what our country is. And and yeah, it is just yeah. But that's a lot of it also. I mean, people who are listening to this on public radio, although we've done some shows with Trump supporters, but one thing I keep saying to them too is, you know the really nice dental hygienist at the dentist office you go to or the guy at, you know, the auto body shop, the one who's really good about you know, reassuring you when your car's dented or I could name a whole bunch of other people that you, they're Trump supporters. You just don't ever talk to them about that and you shouldn't ever talk to them about that. But you, you know them in a way that doesn't permit you, you to regard them as twisted or evil because most of the time they're just part of your life. Honestly, I feel like this election really poses a real question for those of us in in the media trying to talk about it because I feel like everyone in the audience has feelings about it that are so strong. And then then you really have to ask yourself, like, well, what can you even contribute to the conversation? Like, why should anybody be listening to you say anything about it? So the the, the niche that we tried to define for ourselves was one where where we tried to get people on who who you know other who the audience would find sympathetic and and uh you know I feel like that's about all you can do and especially in a show with a format like ours like where where in contrast to like daily news reporting you know we can really spend a long time finding the right people to put on the air and let them talk at length so you feel like you really get get inside their heads 
I, I can almost hear exhaustion creeping into your voice as we talk about this, so we won't talk about it too much longer. But I, I did also feel, I, you know, that's I went sadness. back. That's sadness. That's, that's sadness. not exhaustion. <laughs> okay. Well, that's we're, a... also, we're also putting up a musical, I can tell you that. Ooh. A musical about the election? I will say it is a musical. Mm-hmm. I will say the name Neil Patrick Harris, mm-hmm. and that's all I'm going to say. That's all you're going to say. That's the... next week. That's how Lin-Manuel Miranda began. I bet Lin-Manuel Miranda's involved somehow, though. Uh, the, no, no, he's not. Not no. in this one. Okay. That was the last one. Actually, you and I had a similar idea because one of the things I've been talking about, you had Sarah Bareilles write a song this week about sort of, you know, empiricism and things being actually true and things like that. And um, I had suggested earlier this week that when the election is over, that Oprah will have to organize this thing like We Are the World, where she and you and Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and people from all walks of life are going to be on risers singing some kind of song, a little simpler one than the Sarah Burroughs. I ended up in that, on those risers with Oh, Paul no, Ryan, I, think you, okay. I think you belong. No, because we have to have everybody. That's why, because everybody has to be there. Nah. Uh, I, 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 ideally, be there. But yeah, I, President I Obama in, I, I should be there. Up no, not President Obama. Bono. Oh, Bono. I don't show up to one of these things unless Bono said. That's how you know it's an A-list riser. We are the world. You know, like that's those. Those are the ones you want to be on. All right, I'll get you if Bono. Bono's not there. It doesn't count. I'll get you Bono. No, what okay. I wanted to ask you about is uh, this goes way back to your college days, but I did notice that you studied uh, semiotics at Brown, and I feel like that's one of the things that has been really fascinating about this election cycle. That there's this almost, you know, this semiotics type Saussurean quest to figure out what the heck is Trump saying when he uses <laughs> certain words. You know, like when he uses the word like rigged. You know, everybody sort of his surrogates will come out and go, well, when he means rigged. He sort of means like the media is kind of – and then he'll say, no, that's not what I mean. I mean something else entirely or I mean something much more global than that. And we're spending a lot of time trying to – it's like he's hacking away at the umbilicus between the signifier and the signified. And we're spending wow, all this time – we're spending all this time going, what does he mean? What, what does that word mean when he says it? I mean I haven't thought about that at all. <laughs> I think that that is certainly true, but but I mean my my experience of watching Trump is is that he's not doing what well, he is doing that. But my experience of it is I think we're all having this weird experience of he'll just say things, and we all saw him say the opposite, you know, like three weeks ago, and so but he'll say it to us with a straight face, as if we didn't see him say the first thing, like the, like you know when in the debates he said that that uh, he said a bunch of things like, like uh, that China. He said, "No, I never said that China created the climate yeah. climate change hoax. Like the idea, the idea of climate change was created by China as a hoax." He's like, "I never said that." And like the tweets are just sitting online, right. which he knows. Or like, and I just think like his particular kind of presentation, his entire life has been, he's a salesman, and he's just like claim big stuff, and if if it's not true, it doesn't matter. And he's just applying that in in a context where it's where it just is not the, the traditional place where you do that really as often. And so, like, just it's a weird experience of having somebody just say something to you that you know they know isn't true, and everybody's just supposed to act like, okay, well, I guess that happened. I think also at the level of linguistics, he's making us lose our minds. And so, I read this long article today about whether he's saying bigly or big league. Um, I saw that. You saw that article? And there, so there's this – I have to read this one paragraph. Susan Lin, a professor of linguistics at the University of California, Berkeley, performed an audio analysis of Mr. Trump uttering the phrase in September during the first presidential debate. She visualized her findings using two tools of her trade, a waveform and a broadband spectrogram that have been widely discussed online. We've actually reached the point <laughs> – 
<laughs> we're trying to figure out whether he's saying bigly or big league. There, people are using state of the art audio equipment as opposed to you know just asking him. Yeah, I know, I know. I feel like, and and I, and I just want to say on this one, give the brother a break. As as a non enunciator myself, <laughs> my, my heart is with him one hundred percent with Donald Trump on this one. Right. We should we should love him on that score. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to be back with more of Ira Glass. Right, I just but, want to turn on the air conditioning in this studio. Hold okay. on. I'm just going to – feel free to include this on the air. But this is me like <laughs> yeah. walking out of my studio to the you place. You totally the know we home. will. Okay. So here we go. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to be a second. And, and seriously, it's so warm. Hold on. Okay. Coming back now. Almost there. All right. Okay. Closing the door. Sitting down. It was like you were hotboxing me yes. in my own studio. It was like it was like that scene in the Bridge on the River Kwai where the guy gets punished and puts in the little box by anyway. The reference is so long ago, nobody knows what I'm talking about. But well, just think of this interview as one long stress position. Uh, <laughs> so, oh, so we're back. I Good. can't believe you're pulling out semiotics. Like, do you even think that the audience listening knows? what you're talking about when you say Saucerian. Like, I would never say that stuff on the air. <laughs> Go we just Google talk about it. that for a second? Is, are people smarter in Connecticut? <laughs> oh, Is that just the so thing? Much. Everybody knows. It's actually taught in the fifth grade. It's mandatory. It's in the fifth grade. Uh, <laughs> that seems un-American to me. <laughs> No, it's Derrida in the sixth grade. Uh, they learn this it This is the problem, my friend. This is the problem. We need to be teaching English class, English literature, none of this American... First. Yeah. No, we taught deconstruction, and now look what we've got. We've got exactly the situation you and I just talked about. Uh, yes. it, it's all our fault. All right, we're back with Ira Glass. He's going to be on November 12th, Saturday, at the Bushnell, and he is going to be giving a talk, and you are invited to come to it, provided that you buy a ticket to it. Ira Glass is, of course, the creator and host of This American Life, among many other things. The talk is called Seven Things I've Learned, uh, Seven Things I've Learned, An Evening with Ira Glass. So, hey, can I just interrupt to just ask you yes. a question now? Now, uh, in between... During the break, like you and I, actually, things happened. I ran out of the studio. I came back. We had a little talk about the conversation that happened before the break. Are you going to play any of that on the air? Like, you could insert it right here. Right. We could, yes. Well, what, are you going to do that? I, wanted, I, want to, I want to do the thing with the air conditioning, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just so great. All right. So, would you want to insert that now? Um, uh, yeah, but I think we could just drop it in. What, you, you think we should set it up somehow, or? Oh no no I don't know I'm just yeah. asking a question. Oh, you're being, I was you're being so help helpful. You. I was trying to be a good team. I was trying <laughs> yes, to be a good team player so by helpful. setting it up. I can't believe. I don't know. I was did. trying to throw to it for you. Yeah, but you sh- uh, th- and then I was going to say, okay, so now we're back. But I don't know. But I could yeah, just obviously put- obviously I shouldn't try to boss around this interview. It's your mm. interview, and this is the problem. Is like it's in my head, I was producing your interview, and that, that is I was, so it, it was sweet. inappropriate. It, no, 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 it was actually inappropriate. You are I like, should not be. You are the most helpful guest we've ever had, by far. I mean, you know. But also messing it up by in- intervening where my intervention was not necessary because you could have handled this on your own. I think it's fine. Um, mm-hmm. All right, so here we go. So I want to talk to you also about so this American life. Stop me when I, I get this wrong, but I think there's sort of a pact, a covenant between this American life and its listeners, and and the the covenant is. Yeah, this is not going to be boring. It, it may look as though this is a thing that either re- goes against the grain of what you think or you, or what you think you care about, or it may be a lot more grim. It may be this Eritrean, you know, hostage torture situation as opposed to the rather charming and funny thing that we might have done the week before. But the pact is that we're going to make it really, really interesting, and you're going to stick around for it. You're going to 
you know, give us your attention at least for a while. Am I describing what you think the arrangement is? I mean, it's funny. Like, I don't even think of it from the listener's point of view in that way. I, ge- I guess I can understand that that would be the listener's perception. M- my experience of it is we're going to just try to do different stuff. Mm-hmm. If I had to describe the deal, I think we have the listener with the listener. And then and then at the beginning of the show, we'll try to say enough stuff that you want to stick around and hear the next thing we say. You know, and so when we're doing something difficult about, like, people fleeing Eritrea or, or refugees in Greece or whatever, I feel like, we, we, like one of the things that we spend a lot of time on is think, like, what in the world can we say at the beginning of this show that will make people willing to stick around to hear whatever it is that we do next, especially if the topic is kind of heavy or a topic that is so widely discussed and covered, nobody feels like they have anything else that they want to learn about it. I mean, one reason I was asking that, I was reading, you and I clearly both read the, the New York Times today. And so there was an article about this guy I'd never heard of named Adam Conover, who has this show called Adam Spoils Everything. And he, he sort of, he sets people right uh, about various things that they're misled about. And he's touring around right now. And there was this quote where he said, he's talking about, I guess the writer is talking about him going from place to place. And sometimes he does his show in Houston. And maybe the next time he does it in San Francisco, and so the audiences have different ideas, and the show is political right now. And this line jumped out at me. I mean, the shared values and goals are still there. All that's needed is the mindset of listening to differing views in a mutual search for progress. And I feel like people are having a hard time doing that these days, maybe harder than usual. I had these house guests who are, they're from the Bay Area and they're you know, liberal Democrats and they're very well informed and politically engaged. They couldn't watch the debates because they might see something that really upset them too much. You know, they, oh you know, and <laughs> very <laughs> sensitive. Yeah. I mean, really? I just, yeah, I actually was watching Rudy Giuliani and Jake Tapper on my computer and one of them had to leave the room. He couldn't be in the room. If Rudy Giuliani was talking, which is a sentiment I sort of grasped, but but I wonder about that. Like, what? are you know, are people getting to a point? I guess you, you're not. This isn't resonating with you. I'm just wondering whether people are getting so siloed and so so self protective they just don't want to hear things that they don't want to hear, and and they have the choice. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I do think that that happens. I mean, no, no. I'm, I, I, you know, your friends are babies. Okay, like I say with all respect, <laughs> those people are babies. Yeah. Like, and whatever. I told them that. I said, you have to look in the abyss sometimes. This is the <laughs> abyss. Look in it. Well, you just have to like look around the world. Like, there are people who have other opinions and you grow up. And, and, and everybody's going to be better off if you are, are awake to other people. Like, I don't know. Like, that just seems so contrary to what, like, what's interesting about being alive on the, on the first place. And secondly, what this country's all about. Like, we're, we're here on this earth together like in this incredible place, in this incredible country, we're so lucky and we could listen to each other. Like that would be a lovely thing. And and also it's more interesting to listen to each other. Like your life is more interesting and, and, and suck it up, <laughs> babies. <laughs> oh my God. So, but but to, to get to your bigger point, yeah, I think, I think that, you know, I mean, as everyone says, like we're all in our own little bubbles where we're talking to our own kinds of people on social media and everything reinforces what we already know. And, 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 you know, like and I exist in a special subclass of people who is you know document try to document all sorts of different sorts of people, especially people who are different than me. And so I have a special interest in people who are different than me. But but I I would have that interest. I think even if I if it weren't my job to have that interest. Yeah, but but like what you're describing is a, is a is a huge huge problem. Yeah, I just think people's 
people are more self-protective than they, they have yeah. been for a long time. All right. In a little while, we're going to take a break and there's going to be fundraising. And I know that you have some thoughts about – I actually like doing pledge drives. I mean, I don't – I sort of – I don't like it in the moment, particularly when in the moment is 6.30 in the morning and, and I'm on. But I kind of like talking to people about what public radio is all about and why they have to you know, help us out this way. And it's a little more unfiltered. And I like it. But but you suggested that maybe public radio should get more comfortable with capitalism. <laughs> That's not what I mean when I say you should get more comfortable with capitalism. But um when I've said that public radio should be comfortable with capitalism, what I was saying to an advertising audience mm-hmm. at an event to raise money for public radio from underwriters was that they should underwrite public radio shows mm-hmm. because because they'll reach a big audience and because we won't have to beg from our own listeners as often. And that's been a tradition in public radio for the since the 70s when it started as a national institution and even before – that that like you you know we allow underwriting short classy underwriting messages on the show and I think yes it does not break our shows so I think yes we are ready for capitalism to help pay for these things so we don't have to beg as often I think that's a good thing but but yes I also I like the pledge drive it's funny you say that like you like the idea of you're just talking to the listeners because if you, like I I remember meeting a kid in Chicago who was like nine or ten and the pledge drive was their favorite. <laughs> time on public radio because they they had this feeling of like when when the, when we're all in the air like doing the news and doing our regular jobs it's like we're wearing like a mask and a costume and we're doing our official thing and during the pledge drive is the one time where we're actually just kind of like touch talking I found that surprising at the time but I totally understand that for me the reason why I I like the pledge drive is just I think it's really challenging like I, like I'm a radio producer and I and I'm interested in doing it well and I think that actually the hardest job on public radio is to actually do the pledge drives well because I think they have everything going against them. They are repetitive. The audience knows what you're going to say. They know the punchline to the joke is you're going to ask them for money. And also there's the fact that they are asking for money, which nobody wants to hear anybody asking them for money. So it has so many strikes against it as communication. And so if you're somebody like me who's super interested in how do you make people listen to something, how do you take people to a place and and hold their interest and say something that nobody has said before – the pledge drives are like the Mount Olympus of it or the Mount – whatever – name a mountain that's really – Kilimanjaro. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like it's just like it is the hardest mountain to climb and, you know, every pledge drive – well, not every pledge drive but many, many pledge drives. Like I really do try to reinvent like what's another new way to do this that no one has ever done in all the history of public broadcasting. I feel like it just is like it's the, <laughs> it's the hardest thing that you can do, and and I I like a challenge. Yeah, I, and I think that kid has it right too. That you know, I was on commercial radio, as you know, for sixteen years, and that's what we kind of did every day. We sort of talked very much as ourselves. And this morning, John Dankosky and I were I don't know, we were talking about wreaths because that's one of the things we're giving people, and I, it just felt yeah, it, it did feel like the mask and the cape were off. And I I think people do they welcome that. I mean, public radio there's there there but is a I've formality. Show, I've heard your show. You sound like yourself on your show. How different could it be? That's the nicest thing you could possibly say. No, uh, but that's true. Like yeah. like you sound like like really like this is like this is a facade. Wait, what is that? What's the, wait, 
I don't not like honestly, like I feel like like in my format, like not to like I mean maybe I don't want to get into a competition here, like in any way. Like I say this with respect, but like do you know what I mean? Like when by the time I go on the air, everything I'm saying is like timed and scripted and I'm right. like talking my way to tape and there's music cues. Like it's so it's like it's like I'm it's it's like making a little movie or something, like everything is so precise. But like when you're on the air, like I I've heard your show, like I can tell like there's a really there's a real plan, it's a careful plan. But like also like you you digress and it's fun and like you say the stuff that's on your mind like it that seems real to me like a real thing. It can be realer though, Ira. We have to take a little break here anyway, so we're going to take that break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about innovation, which is pretty much one of Ira Glass's calling cards. So we'll do that after this break. Oh, Ira Glass, you're an American legend. Yeah, you're a wonderful man. Oh, Ira Glass. Oh, Ira. Huh, it is so cold in here ever since Ira turned on the air conditioning in New York. Ira's magic. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro, and our intern is Rusty Glass. Don't get cut by Rusty Glass. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mike Berbiglia. All of our episodes are up on WNPR.org slash Colin. And tomorrow, the nose marvels at the music Leonard Cohen is making at 82. And now, back to Colin. We're talking to Ira Glass. He's going to be at the Bushnell on November 12th. And that's a Saturday. You can go get your tickets. He is going to say, tell you seven things I've learned in Evening with Ira Glass. I want to talk quickly with the time that we have left about innovation. You're constantly trying to do new things, not with just with the forum of This American Life, but with offshoots like Serial and, and different kinds of media. I was I had not seen, but I was watching today an animated New Yorker cover from last year where you worked with the uh, graphic novelist Chris Ware and Nico Muley and all. Is that sort of all contained in one shop, this kind of idea? What can we do right now that breaks the form? What can we do now that changes the form of what we've done in the past? Yeah, that's totally built into to to what I'm interested in. And um, just because partly it's fun and then partly, um, uh, you know, when you've been on the radio, our show is 20 years old, over 20 years old now. And um, and to be on the radio that long, you know, you, you you know, you have to keep like just looking for what is new. But but but, you know, in the early days of the radio show, that's that's what we were trying to do, too. And so sometimes it's just like what's a way to do an hour of radio that nobody has ever done. And so, you know, we'll spend, you know, 24 hours at a 24 hour restaurant or, you know, we'll follow one car dealership for a month as they try to make their monthly sales goals. Like, we'll just try to invent stuff that nobody's done. Or we'll do a musical. And so that's built in. And, and and you know, I think, like, any show is good if the people on the show are out for their own amusement and their own curiosity. And, and that's certainly part of that. But then in addition, the mission of public broadcasting, one of the missions uh, set up by the Carnegie Commission report in the 70s when it established public radio and television as national institutions, or in the 60s and 70s, was innovation. The other big one was excellence. That the and and uh, and and excellence obviously is something that I feel like public radio is achieving every day in so many ways. But innovation is the thing that is the most neglected uh, goal of public public radio. It's like it's it's just there's there's almost none. Like like you know it, there's really almost none. Like if you compare the innovation that happens on HBO or even Fox Television in any given year, there's more invention. There's more new shows. The fact that the hit shows on public radio have been around for decades, that new hit shows do not come forward, that we don't cultivate that. That's 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 our weakest. 
that's our weakest that's the weakest part of our mission and to be fair to program directors and and people like that like it's expensive and and to make stuff that's new you have to try stuff that's going to fail and and you know what i mean like public radio stations are pretty tightly run financial outfits and most places would rather spend the money on hiring another reporter for the newsroom which is a totally legit choice but just to say that's the part of the mission that's the part of our mission that gets neglected. Yeah. Well, as you know, from our previous conversations, I'm totally committed to the idea of failing. And I don't I don't really understand why we have this show on our station, because everything else you say is also very true. I want I'm to just going to say to your listeners who don't know this, though, you do. And I'm just going to talk right past you to them for a second <laughs> that that um, there was a there's a there's an annual convention of, pu- of public radio program directors. And at that convention I, recently this year, I spoke about innovation and then looking for a program as to, here's a show that's trying things and it's trying things that nobody's ever done before and, and, and like it's trying things and fails and trying things and then soaring and just being great. I, I, you know, I looked around the public radio system and, and one of the shows that I played clips of was Colin's show because I think it's great. Uh, well, thank you so much. So I want to quickly talk about podcasts. You're very interested in the form, too. Uh, you've recently or somebody in your in your world has uh, achieved something that's so techy that it might not even be worth describing, but it's a way to easily share part of a podcast onto social media. You've also been to a hackathon where I know you were particularly concerned about the lack of the ability to measure when people drop out of a podcast, when do people stop listening. I assume that has to do with your interest in pacing, uh, which is something that you really specialize well, I just in. Want, I, yeah, yeah, like I wanted some sort of tool so that when people stop listening to the podcast, I can know exactly what minute they stop listening, and then I can go back and figure out, oh, if we're losing everybody at this moment, I want to figure out what did we do that made people go away. But I think the other the thing that people don't understand is, you know, podcasting is obviously this ballooning frontier. It's this, you know, area where people are innovating and experimenting because if you don't do serial, uh, you know, what you can do, you can do pretty inexpensively and you can try all kinds of things and two guys can put on their show about Game of Thrones and it either takes off or it doesn't. I don't think people understand how completely raw that frontier is. Partly, once again, it, it's kind of techy, but partly it's because Apple controls 50, 65 to 70 percent of the frontier, and, and they kind of have this benign neglect attitude about it, right? They they sort of say, well, do whatever you're going to do. It isn't really a big, huge part of our business plan. I mean, I guess. I mean, I, I don't know about that number that you just quoted, but sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, basically, anybody can put up a podcast. You don't have to work with Apple or anyone in particular. You can just like figure out a way to serve MP3s to the world and... And you're up and going. Serial, I think, in some ways might mislead people, particularly people maybe elsewhere in public radio, about what what a podcast even is. Because you know, with Serial, you kind of had the weight of who you are, what your brand is, whatever resources you could bring to bear uh, on this. I mean, Serial is sort of the opposite about, of two guys sitting at Mike's, you know, in their living room talking about Game of Thrones. Serial is all the production values and thoughtfulness of This American Life translated Cereal onto a podcast. Is like two of the most, I mean, Serial, just to say, like Serial is Sarah Koenig and Julie Snyder, hmm. her senior producer, you know, like two of the most talented people, like working in radio in the world, you know, <laughs> like, like, like just to say it, like, and and you know, with hundreds of thousands of dollars and months to spend on the most thorough investigative reporting possible, and um, like, no, that's you know, no, that they, you know, that's a really special project for sure. And uh, and when we did it, we just viewed it as an experiment. We just, you know, they're just like, let's try this thing. And we didn't think it was going to be a hit or anything. Like our, like our business goal was was to make a certain number of people listen because we could then cover the cost with advertising. But 
but but that number was tiny. And and honestly, when they were putting it together, Sarah and Julia would just be like, oh, it doesn't matter. We can do it whatever way we want because nobody's mm. ever going to hear this thing. And so so we were as surprised as anybody. Like we just treated that as another little experiment that we were doing. I'm teaching a course right now, which obliges me to think a little bit in almost a McLuhan-esque way about the DNA of this stuff, including uh, of podcasts. And one thing that does strike me, like I actually liked the second season of Serial even more than I liked the first. But me too. Uh, yeah, and, and I thought in terms of reporting, they wound up getting people to talk who you just don't get. You know, you don't get those people, particularly the last couple of episodes where people yeah. are trying. You just don't get those kinds of people. But I wondered if I'm, – I'm wondering if the DNA of podcasts, the kind of substructure of what people's expectations are and, and how they use it has – that people really want to be at least somewhat – they want to be entertained. The entertainment is a big part of it. It doesn't have to be as funny as John Oliver, but it has to be funnier than CNN, you know, that it and, – and that that I don't know. I'm wondering what podcasts really are and how people are going to wind up using them. And I wondered I mean, if – yeah. th- Oh, sorry. So no. are you going to a question of your own? No, no. You, know, you say what you're going to say. No, like, I, I just think there are different classes of podcasts and I think that there's a whole class of podcasts which, which are really special interest kind of podcasts. You know what I mean? Like like uh, like the Slate Gab Fest. Like mm-hmm. if you're interested in politics, let's listen to a bunch of really smart, entertaining people who really know a lot about politics, talk about it every week. And it's just like a panel discussion, super cheap to do. They sit down in a room, they talk, blah, blah, blah. They don't really edit at all or very much. Same thing for Mark Maron's uh, WTF, you, uh, you know, like, which is the New York Times of, of comedy mm-hmm. podcasts where everybody who's funny goes on to that show. Um, or many of, the pun- many, of the, many of the comedy podcasts, like my wife listens to these podcasts where it really is just like for an hour and a half, it's four really funny people stoned talking to each other. You know what I mean? And like when you're walking the dog, it's really fun. You know what I mean? Like, But you have to be a fan. Like you have to be along for that ride. And, and you know, so I think that that's like a whole class of like podcasts where the audience will always be in a kind of like 20 to 30,000 people to maybe at the most like, you know, 100,000 or for Marin probably 200,000, maybe 300,000, which is a ton of people. But as broadcasting goes, you know, for a national product or an international product, which is what podcasts are, like obviously you can get bigger. And then there's the podcasts that are made by like Gimlet and like we do where we're, because we have more podcasts that are going to be coming out that we're developing now. You know, like this American Life in Serial, where 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 Serial, the model is like like our vision is that 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 you can make a podcast that does what television does. That is, that does what the best TV shows that we binge watch do, where there are characters and 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 emotions and story, and you just get caught in it the same way. And honestly, I feel like I feel like both areas, both both these tracks of podcasting seem exciting. Um, and, you know, the, for me, like the one that, that seems especially exciting is, is the ones that are really trying to do what television does. Like, like the, I, I really think that, 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 that all of us would love to have something as good as the stuff we watch on television, but there's no pictures and we can, and we can like, you know, listen while we're doing things, you know, like driving, you know, and, 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 uh, and uh, that that seems very exciting. And it's interesting that now, like a bunch of people I know are working on bringing back radio drama and trying to do it in a contemporary way. Like, like the, the whole thing is going full circle, though. I think that the only way that you could make that work is if you actually had the people who write the best TV write the radio dramas. 
Um, I'm going to disagree with you about one thing, and then you can go talk to the people who are waiting for you in your office. Um, and the, the part that I'm going to disagree with you, I think one of the substructures of a lot of these shows and some of the ethos of podcasting, and it's such a young form that it's kind of hard to know. But like I'll even I'll pick three of the examples that you gave and, and group them in a certain way. I think it leans heavily on uh, a little bit more of that mask falling off, of seeing the psychological and familial stru- substructure of what's going on, of people showing their work. I mean, you know, Slate Political Gap Fest is different from Meet the Press in the sense that there's this kind of family dynamic going on among David Platts and Emily Bazelon and John mm-hmm. Dickerson. And, you know, mm-hmm. John's the smart good kid and Emily's the super smart, somewhat transgressive girl. And Platts is like this, you know, amusingly, slightly bullying, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Magus or Ludi or something. And and so you you tune in a little bit for that family dynamic. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, Mark Maron is like, you know, if Ed Sullivan came came out every night and every Sunday night and said, yeah, I'm really depressed, you know, and I really I hate myself. <laughs> you know, I mean, Mark Maron is really sort of sharing who he is in a way that broadcasters typically do not. And, and in a way, you know, Serial was so much about Sarah and Julie talking about the process of putting this together and whatever doubts they had and questions that they had. And I think that's really part of podcasting. You know, people kind of dig that idea anyway, that people are actually sharing what they feel like while they're doing the thing that they do. I mean, but I think that that has always been in the very best radio. You know what I mean? Like when, like I think that that's there, but I think that that's Howard Stern, man. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like if you listen to Howard Stern show, like, 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 and I feel like you know, in the stories we try to do on our show, like I feel like you know, you, the reporter is in there as a person who you're, who you're, you know what I mean? Like they aren't just documenting a thing. We're making clear it's it's this particular person documenting a thing. You know, it's Jonathan Goldstein who we're sending in there, or it's me, or it's Hannah, who 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 you know, like we're still mainstream media, so we don't pick a side in a fight, we don't take take a stand on an issue, but but you do know what our interest in it is. Like you see us in the thing as well as see the thing that we're describing, if that makes sense. And so and so I I, I want to kind of yes and what you're saying. Like mm-hmm. I think I think that that's there, but I also think that that's in the very best broadcasting as well. All right. We're going to let you go now. Uh, Ira Glass coming to the Bushnell November 12th and you can still get tickets. Thanks for doing this. Can you turn off the air conditioner when you go out? <laughs> Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the heads up. <laughs> no, just don't leave yes, it running all night, that. is yeah. what I'm saying. Don't leave it running. Thank you very much. All right, all right. thanks okay. for doing this. Bye bye. Special thanks to our producer, Jonathan McNichol, who said something recently which frankly surprised all of us in the newsroom that he is 100% with Donald Trump. I'm Kyone Wolf. Back tomorrow with more from the Colin McEnroe Show.